This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast here on Gadigal Land of the Arrowa Nation. And we're going to be joined in the party room today by Samantha Maiden, who's the political editor of News.com, because this week's been a pretty important week, really a key week, I think, in the future success or otherwise of our vaccine rollout. And I know Sam has been closely observing all the politics swirling around this in Canberra this week. PK, it's been a week of lockdowns with southeast Queensland, unfortunately, joining people in Sydney, trying to fend off the Delta variant and not really doing too well in that battle. And very significantly, for our, it's been a week for our way out of this pandemic, we hope. We got that COVID modelling from the Doherty Institute, which shows us the science and the thinking behind the National Cabinet roadmap to, to living life with COVID, what vaccination targets we need to hit, why we need to hit them and how quickly we need to do it. It's been a big week. It has. And of course, that happened on Friday after our last recording of this podcast, where the Prime Minister had National Cabinet came out with these targets, and then we got the modelling released this week. So the Doherty Institute estimates the consequences of letting the virus spread uncontrolled once the population is at different rates of vaccination. And they concluded that we need to vaccinate 70% of the adult population to reach kind of the, the next phase of the roadmap out of the pandemic, where we don't have to live under sort of this short, sharp lockdown um, rolling situation we're in as often, although they don't rule it out entirely. And then to 80% to get to the phase after that, uh, 80% of vaccination. So we're talking about living with COVID in this scenario, not suppressing it like we're trying to do now, where we're trying to get as close to zero as your Premier in New South Wales keeps saying, um, although you're far off that. It'll mean we can live relatively normally without too many people in the intensive care unit or, of course, or dying. We'd be living with COVID as we essentially live with the flu, right? Because we'd have these extremely high rates of vaccination, although vaccination is not entirely the answer because there are still, you know, there's a percentage risk still. Mm. And so that's what was announced. And some people will still get sick. And of course, we have some vulnerable people dying uh, as we do with the flu. And if people choose, and that's the key word here, choose not to get vaccinated, that modelling demonstrates that it's likely that those people would be the ones that, of course, could potentially die if we are, yeah. you know, have, have COVID in the community and you choose not to get vaccinated. So that was what was announced. And this kind of gives the Prime Minister something to work towards and to say, we want to get to the 70% level, which he's said this week, by the end of the year. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important to, to to talk a bit more about the Doherty model because the 70% um, benchmark or target, 
Prime Minister's even using that term now, I think, um, by the end of the year, though secretly they think they'll get there by November. Life can look a bit different, but we'd still have to some, have some restrictions in place. It's, it wouldn't be a Freedom Day scenario where we reach 70% and everything's off, you know, masks are off, social distancing's off, no more tracking and tracing needed at all, no more quarantine, no more isolation. It's only if we keep some of those restrictions in place that the scenario for living life with COVID is really going to be tenable, I think, because if we do, if we do keep restrictions in place, we, according to Doherty, over 180 days, we might end up with very few people in hospital, less than 100 in hospital and only 16 people dying from it. You know, and generally, I think the population would go well. You know, it's an infectious disease. People do die. But if we go for the Freedom Day scenario, then it's a whole different picture. It'd be 2,000 deaths. It'd be 14,000 people in hospital. And I don't think anyone's prepared for that scenario. So, you know, from now on, it'll be talking more and more about hitting these targets, what that means, how life changes for all of us if we're vaccinated, once we're vaccinated, and how life might be, I think this is what you were getting at, PK, how life might be curtailed for those of us who aren't vaccinated. So we've got a, a carrot and a stick at the same time, you know, with these get vaccinated targets. Yeah, and and. You know, and that sort of feeds into this vaccination passport, the fact that ultimately you'll have, uh, you know, more rights, citizenship rights is what we're moving towards if you get vaccinated. If you don't, not only do you risk death when, when of course, we get out of the suppression phase, but you also will no doubt not be able to do some basic things, right? I mean, we know some workplaces announced today yeah. uh, uh, mandating vaccinations. So, And we're seeing it in Europe. I mean, in, in, in many cities, you can't go into a restaurant unless you're vaccinated or can show you've just had a test. You can't go to a museum. You can't go to the concert or movies. This is really what's looming. Um, and we're only just starting to look at this conversation because we haven't had the vaccines and we still don't have anything close to a vaccine passport. But that seems as though it's coming. It is certainly coming. So in political terms, it's really the government trying to put past failures of the pandemic, like the incredibly slow vaccine rollout and, and the leaks from hotel quarantine behind it. It's, it's, it's kind of a line in the sand saying, this is where we're going towards. Here's your roadmap. Here's, here's the modelling. We're going to reach that target. Look, we're just all about achievement, about getting the job done. This is the kind of action man language you're hearing from the Prime Minister now because he knows he's under serious strain. I mean, I've spoken, just to give a bit of insight to our podcast listeners who I think would like to get that from us, I've spoken to MPs and and uh, senior politicians on the government benches who tell me that the traffic in their offices from constituents and beyond on this issue of frustration around the vaccine is through the roof and they know that they are in trouble. They know that they're under incredible pressure. And, and you know, when we talk about things like election timing, and you've said this before on the podcast, they don't want to go to an election this year because there is no way they want people socially distancing, masks on, mm. um, not vaccinated yet, uh, on polling day, because they know that that will be the last reminder. If people are in long queues, they'll think, you stuffed this up and I'm in this queue, <laughs> right? So their political future is very much premised on this working over the next couple of months, even though it's been been slow and and being able to turn around this scenario. And I think Greater Sydney provides a really interesting template for how 
um, you know, if this can be done quickly with your Premier saying she wants to get, what, six six million jabs out, like she wants to get this yeah. this job done quickly. The Prime Minister needs her to as well. Yeah. They need each other to make this work. <laughs> they do. Their political fortunes are very closely tied at the moment, it would seem. But, hey, a week's a long time in politics, so six months before an election, that's an age. Um, but, yes, definitely there's a, the Prime Minister's trying to pivot here, as you said, away from the past failures. Let's forget all that now and let's get into the action plan. The, I'm the action man here. I'm going to be rolling out the vaccines. Um, but in that pivot, we've seen some, you know, really about faces on, on policy because Professor Jody McVernon from Doherty made it clear now that the vaccine rollout strategy has to shift quite sharply towards younger Australians under the age of 40 because, as some epidemiologists have been saying for a while now, they're the most mobile group. They're the group that are out there socialising, working, um, infecting, really, people, more of the population um, with with COVID, and they're the group that isn't vaccinated almost hardly at all. They haven't been allowed to get a vaccine. So now that's shifting and the focus will be particularly starting in southwest Sydney but beyond in Canberra. I know they're opening up. In fact, they've had demand like the, the Chief Minister I spoke to in Canberra said, demand like you'd see for a Taylor Swift concert. People yeah, under 40 putting up their hand to go and get a, a, a vaccine, a Pfizer vaccine this week. So that's a really big shift and we've had a few backflips this week, PK. We've had, a, I think it's been a, a gold medal week for vaccine backflips. <laughs> We have seen a few backflips back this week, Fran. Uh, I will use the word. It's kind of the perfect word really for it. Um, me weeks ago, Scott Morrison was praising the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian for her gold standard COVID response and, you know, holding off, of course, on, on lockdowns and and praising her for not implementing that that way of, of you know, managing the pandemic. But in this Olympics week, there's been a gold medal backflip from the federal government on lockdowns, and they've been inching this way really for the last couple of weeks. But even now from the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. This is the Prime Minister's point. Early interventions, short, sharp lockdowns, are the most cost-effective way to handle the virus, particularly at the current time. Oh, what was that I heard, PK? Did I hear that short, sharp lockdowns are the best way to handle this virus rather than... I think you did. I think I heard it. And now, it's really important, I think, to hold them to account for the fact that they smashed, (laughs) politically speaking, uh, the the kind of, you know, trigger-happy premiers that just loved going into lockdown really quickly. And now, you know, the numbers don't lie, right? (laughs) lockdowns, the point is you have to have one regardless with this strain, they've realised. Regardless. Yeah, you do. So you and, go and in and you have it quicker or do you have a long one like you're having in New South Wales and like we had in Victoria last year? And you, the, the, the science is clear. Yeah, and as we were just saying off air, I mean, the, the Delta variant is different. There's no doubt about it. We've all got to live and learn in a pandemic. Um, and so fair enough. The, the the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have, have lived and learned to know that the Delta variant means short, sharp lockdowns are the way to deal with this, even though they resisted them for so long and gave the gold medal to Gladys Berejiklian for doing so as well. This is really, I think, the messaging coming from the government and the Treasurer to try and stem the frustration in the community, get ready for short, sharp lockdowns up until we reach those vaccination targets. It's not just all about trying to divert attention from the, the chaos of the of the vaccine rollout in the past up until this moment. It's also about trying to tamp down the frustration in the community as community, different communities will go into short, sharp, hopefully very short, sharp lockdowns to deal with the Delta strain as we get these outbreaks until enough of us are vaccinated.
Yeah, and it's worth mentioning before, I just want to pivot quickly to another topic, which I think is important, but just it's worth mentioning, we're recording this on a Thursday morning as we do, Fran and I hanging out at the same time every week, we love it, and you know, Victoria's recording cases again of the virus, you know, right after sort of the the one second it feels like or the very brief moment of sunshine of Donut Day, which we've got to look at Mother's Day, which we like to call it in the Greek community, the, the <laughs> sort of the yummier treat. Uh, but it just shows how short-lived it is. The virus is just so super, you know, virulent. It's very hard to smash down. And so we just, it's just a whole different reality. You know, every time we get excited, we get put back in our corner. Hey, Fran, before we let our guest in, something significant has happened this morning, Thursday morning, and that's the Morrison government um, and the, the Prime Minister delivering this new closing the gap statement. It's now being recalibrated with new targets, with the peak Aboriginal health groups. It's a co-partnership led by Aboriginal people and the government together. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've delivered a, kind of lots of measures worth more than a billion dollars to reduce uh, disadvantage. Key in this announcement is a $378.6 million redress scheme for members of the Stolen Generations um, and as part of that implementation plan, I thought the Prime Minister's speech and actually Anthony Albanese's speech were both quite powerful, strong speeches acknowledging the wrongs. But i got to say, as somebody who has watched this area very closely for 20 years now, uh, you were saying off air, Fran, we were talking a bit off air, weren't we, uh, but before we started pressing the record button, that... When was the Bringing Them Home report? Well, like, I mean, yeah. 24 years ago was that Bringing Them Home report, which was the Stolen Generation report. So, you know, my response to this money, which is federal funding for redress for Indigenous Australians from the Stolen Generation in, in the territories only, in Northern Territory and the ACT, is at last. I mean, what took mm. you so long, really? Mm. But having said that, Indigenous leaders are happy with this $1 billion response. They think it's a, a good start. They're obviously happy with this redress money. And and, and they are crediting Scott Morrison for, you know, reorienting the Close the Gap strategy, bringing the Indigenous organisations uh, closer into the process so they're really owning it and driving it. And they are, you know, appreciative of this billion-dollar injection. Yeah, that's right. And and the Prime Minister, I've, got, I've spoken to many of the Aboriginal people involved who say to me, you know, on this one, he has been consultative and wanting a genuine partnership now. And I'm going to use the cliche, but Fran, the proof will be in the pudding. Um, can they deliver? Can he deliver? We'll keep scrutinising it, both of us on our shows, watching it closely, and, and hopefully we can turn around some of these things, including the incarceration rate, which he said in his speech, you know, it's the justice systems are run by the states. But clearly the federal government needs to do some heavy lifting on this as well because you cannot have, uh, you know, young people in jail, uh, in detention, really subjected to a lifetime of incarceration and intergenerational trauma that comes from Mm. it. You can't, but we do. And that's the problem we've got to change. (laughs) All right, let's bring in our guest, Fran. Let's do it. (laughs) Samantha Maiden, political editor at news.com.au. Welcome to the party room. Thanks for having me. Hi, Sam. Sam, we've been talking already about some of the pivots, backflips, whatever you want to call it, um, important ones made in the COVID messaging and policy direction this week. It's all very well, Sam, to talk the talk, but now the government and all of us really have to walk the walk. Do you think the message is now clear enough and is the rollout of the vaccines ramped up and ready to go in an effective way? Because, you know, it was bungled early (laughs) on in aged care. We all saw that. Has the general got things ready to roll? Uh, no, like, I mean, I think that it's still a, a big mess. And, and, and you know, I don't uh, 
resolve for a moment of the fact that this is hard, right, mm. and you can't expect it to be perfect, and that compared to a lot of other countries, Australia has had a golden run, right, uh, in terms of the number of deaths and the number of infections. We have been very lucky, right? Mm. Uh, but that has put us at a, a real uh, vulnerability in terms of these new variants turning up. We've got no real immunity in the community and we seem to have had this idea that we could sort of, uh, you know, the, the vaccine stroll out idea. Um, and, and, you know, like even today I've been writing a story about um, communities in the central coast of New South Wales that have literally got uh, text messages at the weekend cancelling their appointments mm. of Pfizer and, and AstraZeneca, I think mainly Pfizer, um, and basically told, oh, no, we need those vaccines for the Year 12 students in Sydney, yeah. right? And part of them has been like, okay, fair enough, you know, they're trying to all be in it together. But now they, there's just white-hot anger in the community because now they have an outbreak. They were always pretty close to areas with outbreaks. They have two, close, two schools that have shut down for deep cleaning and they've had their, their vaccine appointments cancelled. Now, the Prime Minister has stepped in, uh, you know, on Thursday to basically give another nearly 200,000 doses to New South Wales, bringing forward uh, stuff that they were going to get in September. And uh, he's told news.com.au that uh, a condition of that is that they restore those supplies to those areas, the people who had appointments cancelled. Ah. But I'm not even sure when that's going to happen or yeah. how that's going to happen because, number one, you know, COVID is in that community right now. If those people had been vaccinated last weekend or when they were meant to be vaccinated, they would have, you know, an increasing over the next couple of weeks protection. But these new vaccine supplies that the Prime Minister is talking about are not even going to roll for a couple of days or a week. And then how do you get those people back into appointments, That's right? right. You've got to gear it all up again. You're mm. right. I mean, I was going to say red hot because I've had a lot of people contacting uh, me on breakfast with that very thing, saying I was due and I got the call and it got cancelled and now we've got it here. And they are really upset about it and frightened, I think, too, not to mention furious. <laughs> so that's that's a problem. So the answer, part of the answer is the reason we're not vaccinated is because we haven't had the vaccines. Now we're going to start getting the vaccines. The government keeps saying, oh, they're coming, supplies rolling, we've got all this vaccine. Actually, it's not going to roll until September in October in big enough numbers. Um, and suddenly we're talking about incentives to get vaccinated. Uh, we got there to this point too early because the vaccines aren't even they're in place yet, really. Well, they are for AstraZeneca. I mean, to be fair, there's bucket loads of AstraZeneca, right? Mm. So when people talk about there's a supply problem, what they're really saying is there's a supply problem with Pfizer, right? And the, the obvious, you know, I don't need to tell anyone, issue here has been that, first of all, they said that under, they started saying that under 50s and then eventually they're saying under 60s, you know. So there's a huge group in the community that they're saying that the best practice is to take Pfizer. The great thing is that um, a whole bunch of people have been rolling up their sleeves, younger people, and saying on the balance of risks, I'll take AstraZeneca. But I still think that's at the margins. Like at the bottom line is, you know, yeah. you should be able to give yourself, give people the vaccines that they're meant to have under the advice, right? And and that's the problem. In terms of the incentives, look, I thought it was probably smart politics of Anthony Albanese to do it because it dominated the, the the media debate for at least 24 hours, arguably 48 hours. 
I think that, uh, you know, do you really have to give everyone $300? Well, there's a question mark over that. But as we all know, with, when these things roll out, there's compliance costs if they put means tests, right? So a lot of the time it's just cheaper just to give it to everybody. Uh, but I think that it's really strange that the Prime Minister was so anti it and so aggressive and mm. saying, you know, how dare you, this is an insult, you know, this is saying to people, people don't want the money, you know, they want to do it for the good of the nation. Huge portions of the community, small business, people that have been stood down from their jobs are on their knees, right? What they have been asked to do for the good of everyone is so much and the idea that they don't deserve 300 bucks, my God, that is like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the Prime Minister slapping it down. The Leader of the Opposition is treating this like a game show, Mr Speaker, and he needs to ensure that when he puts policies together, they won't be ill-disciplined or ill-informed, Mr Speaker. He should take the opportunity to ensure that he is across this information. Okay. So, Sam, there's mixed views on the idea of a sort of fixed vaccine payment. But clearly you are dead right. Anthony Albanese kind of finally had, he. it was being argued on his terms. It was his idea. The government didn't have an idea. They were just poo-pooing his idea. And now General Fruin has kept the idea alive of a potential payment in the future. Obviously, it would be more targeted to really hesitant groups down the track. But did it not just expose the government for actually not having its own sort of plan of getting the hesitant and the others motivated to do this? Yes and no, because I think that uh, the Prime Minister and the General made clear on that first press conference on Monday or whatever it was, that they were actually open, for example, to some incentives or even a cross-lotto type arrangement. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think there's been a bit of misunderstanding there that when the general got up the second or the third day, people were going, oh, he's saying this now. Well, he said it on Monday, right? Mm-hmm. Like they made it clear back then. And so I think they are kind of open to having maybe some sort of, you know, cross lotto draw. But, uh, you, you know, like I don't think But that's opposed- even more confusing then, isn't it? If they are open to that, the sort of the, uh, the, sort of the general attack on the whole Labor idea was fairly... Don't ask intense. me to explain what goes no, to no, the no. Prime Minister's mind. I mean, like, the, I agree, right? Like, I just think that given that, you know, I mean, he, he has made clear a number of times, and so has the general, that they have actually been considering incentives and they're doing yeah. it right now. Mm. So, so what he seems to be doing is having a tanty, right, he's having a tantrum that Anthony Albanese is on the front page of the Daily Telegraph and he's doing, he's got a story up. Uh, I, right? think, I think what it was was he's finally... toys out of the car. Yeah, he was upset. No, I think he finally got an attack line and so he's gone on the attack and yet there I was watching Question Time, which we haven't seen for quite a while now, um, and and not only was he attacking Labor there over the plan and calling it insulting, he just went full on against um, Labor for spending too much money. Let's have a listen. Because what it is showing with this leader of the opposition is, Mr Speaker, they have learnt nothing, absolutely nothing, Mr Speaker, over their years in opposition. It's hardwired, it's in their DNA, Mr Speaker, to recklessly spend Australian taxpayers' money. 
Now, that's what I call audacious for a government that's just shoveled out tens of hundreds of billions of dollars um, to address the pandemic and try and keep the economy afloat with some great success, racked up what is it, a trillion dollars into the out years of debt, accusing the other side of reckless spending because they're suggesting $300 a week for people. What What's behind well, that? $300. I yeah, mean, $300 look, one off, I beg your pardon. It's $6 billion, yeah. right? It's not a small amount. No, it's a lot of money, but... Uh, but you know, you look, know what I'm just, saying. Just in the in the in the desperate hope that I can say something uh, enough to get myself into trouble here. Um, Ooh, good. Let's let's make this spicy. <laughs> he's taking the piss. He is taking the piss. Right? Like, honest to God, uh, you know. And and like, it's not the same amount of money we're talking million, not billion. But in the same twenty four hour period, we learnt that his 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 other tanty when he got up and said if. Christine Holgate from Australia Post doesn't like it. If she doesn't want to stand aside while investigate the Cardia watches, she can go. Well, that's now cost taxpayers $1.1 million. Mm. Mm. You could buy about 150 Cardia watches for that. So, like, he, he had a tantrum on the floor of Parliament that cost taxpayers a $1 million. That's, so- that's the truth of it. And now, in terms of their spending, right, I mean, you know, any economist would support it, right? Of course, yeah. You needed to do it's that stimulus. Stimulation. You needed to put it into the economy. The government did the right thing. Josh Frydenberg did the right thing. I think there's an argument that they had a lot of wastage with JobKeeper, that some people got it who shouldn't, right? But this is the nature of these programs, right? You know, they were happy enough to sling mud uh, quite rightly, in some cases, against the Gillard government and the you know, Rudd Gillard government for the pink bats and the BER, right? Mm. At least the Building Education Revolution actually built some bloody school halls. Oh, and a right? lot of houses got insulated, that's for sure. Well, but people died as well. So, yeah, you know, but, but my point is that when you rush these programs out, guess what? Mistakes it, happen. Mistakes happen. And that's what's happened to JobKeeper. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he just doesn't have a leg to stand on. I mean, people will be laughing. But more dangerous, like this debate about, uh, you know, fiscal, you know, discipline or whatever. Rectitude. That is a very inside the beltway debate, right? Mm. I think the biggest da- the bigger danger for Scott Morrison is people who are absolutely struggling in these suburbs that are locked down are going to say that guy wouldn't let me have the 300 bucks. And I think that's more electorally damaging to him than people, you know, having an inside the beltway discussion about, you know, uh, how kind of loose Labor is with spending when the Liberals have been pretty loose in the last 12 months themselves. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly a loose time. Look, I want to pivot and change to another topic that I think is very important this week. The Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, has come out with an opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald criticising the decision to appoint Christian Porter as the acting leader of the House of Representatives. Now, Christian Porter has been accused of raping a woman in 1988, but last year his alleged victim died by suicide. He has strongly denied this accusation. But Grace Tame says his promotion points to a wider issue of morality in our leadership. Sam, the Prime Minister would have known this move, would agitate, would upset, would um, trigger and would not go unnoticed and would be controversial. Why did he stick his neck out to do this? Is, was it just political convenience? Was he being deliberate? What's going on here? Well, I'm not sure if he necessarily would have uh, done it in the context of thinking people are going to lose their minds and I don't care. Um, I think that he would have done it because 
uh, you know, it's not a job that anyone can do, right? Like it's an important job with a finely balanced parliament being the manager of government business. Christian Porter has done it before. He knows how to do it. And obviously as a result of that controversy last year, he stood aside from that job and now Peter Dutton does it, right? So, you know, the, if not for that controversy, it's an obvious thing to get the guy who's done it before to do it. I think that it does speak of a really wicked problem, though, which does arise sometimes in these cases and is clearly the case in this case, right, in that you now have an impasse where Christian Porter, where uh, this issue can really never be resolved, right, because, uh, you know, there was a call for an independent inquiry. The government didn't go for that. Police investigation can't continue because the woman has died. There's a possibility that then we were told there was going to be a defamation hearing that would act as some sort of de facto inquiry and he would give evidence in the under oath during that process. That didn't happen because there was a settlement between Mr Porter and the ABC. So now the last thing we've really got left is maybe there'll be some sort of um, coronial inquiry in South Australia into the woman's death, what form that will take, whether or not Mr Porter would give evidence, we don't know. This is the devilish problem, right? The Prime Minister is correct to say, even though it makes people very angry, that um, Christian Porter is an innocent man under the law, right? And this issue cannot be resolved now. So what do we do with someone like Christian Porter? Do we say that he can never hold a ministry again, that we, but we he haven't can never said have that. a job again. He that is he can in the, never... But he is in the Cabinet. He didn't, so no one has said that. Okay, so is that okay, but this is not okay? What's the difference? Well, I, I, I guess that's a point that this, as you say, this remains unsolvable in a, in a sense, or unresolvable, that's a better word for it. Um, he is in a Cabinet in a less contentious portfolio, given the given the allegations that ma- were made against him, which he's denied, of course. Well, he's paid um, the same amount. I mean, he's paid a bit less because he's not manager yeah, of Yeah, but he's business. not Attorney yeah. General, and I think we all know where that sort of, you know, contention was going to come okay, in that portfolio. Okay, so he's paid a price then as well, Right. Arguably, I am playing devil's advocate a bit here. And I, I thought, know that I thought some... it was a. I was very surprised that the the prime minister did this at this time in this year. I thought it was really sticking your neck out, really. Yeah, well, I look. I'm playing devil's advocate here because it's a boring conversation if we all agree. Um, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I agree. I, I think that it is a really difficult problem, right? And it comes up not just in this case, but other cases like it, right? We do have this uh, idea that in some cases, if someone is accused of something, right, this idea of cancel culture, right, look, I know that makes people lose their minds. But, you know, what do we do with someone like Christian Porter? He has not been charged, right? He is accused. It is a a nightmare of a problem. The woman is dead. You know, how do you resolve this? And, And then what do we say? Do we say he must leave politics? Do we say he can't work in a law firm? Can he can he have a job afterwards? Can he do anything? Does he have to like? But I don't think we are hard. in that territory. I think we but are in that very, territory. So it's know, about it's signalling, isn't hard. it? It it it. But it is. Look, there will always be a group of people, and I'm not even saying to you that I don't necessarily agree with them, right? Mm. Who say that um, this is red rag to a ball? This is insulting, as Grace Tame has said. Right, And I think she said it very eloquently and she said it very powerfully and I'm glad she said it. But I'm just saying we also need to think of the other part of this equation. Justice must seem to be done for both the accused and the victim. Now, a lot of the time, uh, you know, almost all of the time, we don't get that justice for 
people that have been the victim of sexual crimes and rape and abuse, right? Happens all the time. We talk about, you know, justice and the rule of law in relation to Christian Porter. Where's justice and the rule of law for people that uh, their cases don't get to trial? The, the police say there's no prospect of a conviction. You know, this is a really difficult problem and, and we know that the conviction rates uh, for rape and sexual crimes are way, way, way lower than they are for others because, tragically, a lot of the time it is what, you know, Peter Dutton somewhat incendiarily referred to as a he said, she said, right? I think it's a really difficult problem to resolve and we've got to think about the ramifications of giving justice and fairness to the victims and the accused. And this one is such a difficult problem because I don't see how you can deliver an outcome that anyone would be happy with. There will always be those that say that Christian Porter should be prosecuted. That's not going to happen. There will always be those that say Christian Porter has been the victim of an outrage. And I don't know how to reconcile those two Mm. things. Mm-hmm. Sam, I'm glad we haven't furiously agreed on everything, Miss Devil's Advocate. Thanks for coming on Thanks, the party Sam. room. Thank you. See ya. See ya. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Ken, who writes, last week you were asking about if there was any candidate who could cut through, something Albo really hasn't been able to do. I am reminded of what happened in New Zealand when a Labor leader realised that he couldn't win, so he stood down and they found Jacinda. I can see that a female leader would certainly put ScoMo, this is his word, not mine, in a difficult position, especially given his track record in the way he treated both Julia Banks and Brittany Higgins. Penny Wong is an obvious choice, but she is in the wrong house. Of course she is. And doesn't really see herself as a candidate. Any ideas, Fran? Uh, Well, I don't think it's for me to give ideas for a political party on who should lead them, really. That's my first point. A few people have said this to me over the time. They they were saying that they thought uh, that the Prime Minister Scott Morrison might have difficult difficulty with his style if he was up against uh, a female opponent. I don't, I'm not sure if that's true. Um, who are the obvious candidates in Labor? Well, uh, Penny Wong is one. She's the leader of Labor in the in the Senate. She was part of the leadership team at the last election, as was Tanya Plebisic, who's been deputy Labor leader in the past too. But I don't see a- any momentum at the moment. PK, I don't know if you do, within the Labor caucus for changing the leadership at this moment. So, you know, I think it's it's not so easy now for Labor to change the leader. And at the moment, I can only see Anthony Albanese leading them to the next election. Yeah, I feel the same, although, you know, I might be eating my words. You never know. There might be something going on that I somehow missed. Uh, but that is absolutely 100% agree with you. That is my take too. But I do, I will say this, I do speak to senior Labor people who tell me that they are aware that, you know, they're struggling and they're also aware that product differentiation in, in, a, in a female leader up against uh, uh, the Prime Minister would be a powerful statement. They say it as an observation at yeah. this state, not, a, not in a, and we're now going to move. I say, yeah, I reckon. I mean, because I do. I, I, yeah, I agree with you. It's not our place to say who should be the person. But I, as a political analyst, which is what, you know, I'm paid to do here right now, do believe that if uh, there was, let's insert name, Tanya Plibersek up against 
the Prime Minister, I reckon that would be absolutely tricky for him. I do. I think it would be harder for him than it is up against Anthony Albanese. I really strongly believe that given some of these issues, don't forget the women's marches this year, those issues are still bubbling away in the community, that that would provide a contrast that would be difficult for the Prime Minister to manage. Thanks for your question, Ken. Everybody, send your questions in. We love getting them, as you can tell. You can tweet using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. Follow us, follow us, follow us. Follow us, follow us, follow us. So that's it from The Party Room this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.